This one will be Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this morning we did the New Testament. We talked about every single book. There are 27 of them in the New Testament. What their book is about and maybe a key verse or a key thought or some identifying characteristics of those books. Tonight, as Jordan mentioned, we have a 39-point sermon. I think in 20-plus years of preaching, this is the first time I've preached a sermon with 39 points. But here we go. We're going to talk about the Old Testament. And what I want you to do, if you weren't with us this morning, maybe just get your paper copy, your copy, not somebody else's, of the Bible. And you can turn to the first page of each book of the Old Testament with us. And maybe jot down just a phrase or a description, something that you feel like is going to help you to understand this book better as you read it. And I'll be giving you kind of a key verse or a verse at least to think about. Some of the books of the Old Testament, even the New Testament as well, are very, very difficult to summarize in a key verse. But these will help you to think along the lines of what's in these books. When you think about the Bible, we talked this morning about how the Bible's about three things. It's about God's glory, about man's salvation, and all of that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. The salvation of man to the glory of God through Jesus Christ our Lord is the theme of the Bible. And whether you're talking about the Old Testament, which talks about the coming of Christ, or the New Testament, which talks about the fact that Christ has come, and we ought to respond accordingly, Both the Old and the New Testament deal with the theme of our salvation to God's glory through Jesus Christ. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Hebrew scriptures. This was the constitution, if you will, of ancient Israel. They were a nation unto God. And these 39 books, they tell us a great deal about God and what he's like. They tell us a great deal about what love and what morality look like. And they teach us a great deal about what Jesus was supposed to come and do, all of which he accomplished. There are five divisions of the Old Testament. If you've got a handout from tonight, from the foyer, there are five divisions, it's at the top of your handout. And here's the numbers that go with the five divisions. Five, 12, five, five, 12. Five, 12, five, five, 12. There are five books of law that begin your Old Testament. There are 12 books of history. After those 12 books of history, there are five poetry books, Hebrew poetry. There are five what we call major prophets, and that just means they're longer books. And then there are, at the end of the Old Testament, there are 12 minor prophets, and that just means they're shorter books. They're not less important, just shorter. So five law, 12 history, five poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. That's how the Old Testament is arranged. It is not, and this is hard, especially if you're a new Christian or new to the Bible, It's not chronological. So it doesn't start like a story that you or I might tell. It doesn't start at point A and go to point Z in a a sequential manner. The books of the Old Testament are arranged in that manner. Law, history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets. And a lot of what you read in the latter part of the Old Testament actually precedes a lot of the things you read earlier in the Old Testament. So it gets kind of difficult sometimes to kind of put these things in order. 
But it's important to know that as you read God's Word. We're going to start with Genesis in just a second, so be opening your Bibles there, and we're going to talk about every one of these 39 books, give you something to think about. What is this book all about? What is it here for? Why is it, why did God put it in His Word? And maybe some things to help you to understand the book better. Off we go. The book of Genesis, number one. The key word of Genesis is beginnings. It is a book about beginnings. It tells us about where the world came from, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It talks about four great events and four great men. Four great events and four great men. The four great events in the early chapters of Genesis are the creation, the fall in the Garden of Eden, the flood in Noah's day, and the Tower of Babel, four great events and four great men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's Genesis in a nutshell. Key verse or key, uh, key passage in Genesis, Genesis 12 verses one through three. When God calls Abraham, it is hard to overstate how important those verses are because everything else that happens in the Old Testament and most of what happens in the New all relates to that promise that God made to Abraham. I'm going to bless all nations through your descendants, Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Know those verses, learn those verses, remember what they say. Because they, they tell you the story of why God does, <coughs> excuse me, what He does for the rest of the Old Testament. Book of Exodus. Key word for Exodus, deliverance. Exodus is about God's people in slavery and captivity in Egypt and God delivering them out. You remember God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Exodus 5 verse 2, Pharaoh asks one of the great questions of the Old Testament, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Key verses in Exodus, Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, God tells Israel that he has brought them out of Egypt on eagle's wings and that he is going to make them a holy nation, a special and a peculiar, peculiar nation unto him. He starts a covenant with Israel, Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. And for the rest of Exodus, from chapter 20 to chapter 40, most of the book is about God giving his law to the people. And lots of rules and lots of regulations, lots of commandments, because God was making a covenant with these people. He delivered them from slavery, from captivity, and then he made them into his people, his royal people. The book of Leviticus. Most of you have probably not spent a great deal of time in Leviticus. Key word of Leviticus is the word holy. H-O-L-Y, holy. The word holy in all of its Hebrew forms is found at least 143 times in Leviticus. And when you read Leviticus, reading as an American in 2023, AD, you're going to look at this and say, why in the world does the Bible contain all this? God talks about sacrifices. He talks about how to do certain different types of sacrifices. He talks about the priesthood. He talks about feast days when the Israelites were supposed to come and to observe feasts. All that's in Leviticus. And you say, what does that have to do with me? That's how God taught people to be holy. To be holy means we're separate from sin. It means we're devoted to God. It's how he set those people apart. You know how God teaches us holiness now? By the cross, by what Jesus did for us. Key verse of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 verse two. 
Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 2. By the way, you might just jot down Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. When people ask Jesus, what are the great commandments in the law? Jesus quoted Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's number two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. Numbers, the book of Numbers. Key word, key phrase, wanderings. Wanderings. You want to hear about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? Numbers is where you go. In Numbers chapter 13, by the way, it's called Numbers because they take a census a number of times in this book. And they count the number of people of Israel. That's why it's called Numbers. But it's really about the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness. In Numbers 13, right after they leave Mount Sinai the first time, The Bible says they go to a place called Kadesh Barnea. They send spies into the land. The spies come back and say, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can take the land. And the people believe those 10 spies, not the two that had the faithful witness in Numbers 13. And so God became angry with them. Key verses of Numbers, Numbers 14, verses 22 and 23. Numbers 14, verses 22 and 23, where God says, All those people that saw my works in Egypt, they saw that I did miracles for the Egyptians and yet they have tested me here in the wilderness. None of them are gonna live to see the land of promise. And that's exactly what happened. They wandered in the wilderness for the next 40 years until an entire generation of Israelites had died in the wilderness. Numbers has to do with the wanderings of the people in the land. Deuteronomy, next book. Book of Deuteronomy. Second law, that's what Deuteronomy actually means. But if you want a key phrase or key verse, second law, that's what it means. Deuteronomy, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Deuteronomy contains, depending on how you count, about three sermons that Moses delivers to the Israelites before they go into the land. Three sermons, they're really long sermons, but Moses is preaching to the Israelites and he's reminding a new generation now that's grown up in the wilderness. They've never known what it was like to be slaves. This is a brand new group of people and Moses is teaching them about the law that God had revealed on Mount Sinai four decades earlier. Key verses of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 verses four through six. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wanted these people to be loyal to him. The Ten Commandments are repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. The laws of blessings and cursings are repeated toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God wanted this new generation to hear his word again. Second law, Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua, now we get into the books of history. The book of Joshua, key word, conquest. Joshua is about the taking of the land of Canaan. God had promised that land to Abraham centuries earlier. And Joshua is the account of the Israelites coming into the land and conquering that land. They didn't conquer it completely, not the way God instructed them to. And yet that's what happens in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter one, verses six through eight, God says to Joshua, you be strong and have good courage. Moses, my servant is dead. You hold on to my word, Joshua. You follow my commandments and I will give you good success and prosper you in whatever you do. There's a verse that most of us probably know from Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The early chapters of Joshua deal with the conquest. In the middle to the latter part of Joshua, what you have is a long list of how the land was divided. And that was very important for ancient Israel. They needed to know what land belonged to their tribe, to their clan, to their family. And all of that is delineated in the book of Joshua. Very important Old Testament book for that purpose. The book of Judges. Next book in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Key phrase, no king. No king. God said back in the book of Deuteronomy, I want to be your king. And so the judges were men and sometimes women that rose up and when people would be oppressed in the land of Israel, the judges, their job was to rise up and to take care of these enemies of Israel. And what you have in Judges, it's not a pretty book. You have a number of cycles of sin. The Israelites would be faithful for a little while and they'd prosper and God would deliver them and then they'd fall into sin, they'd commit idolatry and the Bible says that God would allow them to be captive to a, a foreign nation or a, a, an invader of some kind and then God would have to send a judge to deliver them again. And over and over and over you see these cycles in the book of Judges. Two key passages, Judges 17, 6, Judges 17, 6, Judges 21, 25. Both of them say the same thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. No king. Ruth, the book of Ruth. Key phrase, kinsman, redeemer. Kinsman, redeemer. What in the world are you talking about, John? Ruth is a Moabitess. She is not an Israelite. And yet she marries an Israelite man early in the book. He dies. And so Ruth follows her mother-in-law, who is also a widow, Naomi, back to Bethlehem, back to Israel. And Ruth is just a sterling character. I can't tell you how beautiful the book of Ruth is. And it's amazing that God sandwiched Ruth right in between Judges with all of its sin and decadence and 1 Samuel with all the immorality that happens in that book. Right in the middle is this beautiful flower blooming in the desert of the book of Ruth. Ruth meets and marries a kinsman redeemer, a man named Boaz. And in chapter four of Ruth, she becomes not only part of Boaz's family, but she becomes an ancestor of David and of Jesus himself. Because of her integrity, because of her devotion to God, Ruth chapter one, verses 16 through 18, key verses, often quoted at weddings, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. May the Lord so do to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. 1 Samuel. I need to say this. If you're new to the Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel used to be one book. 1 and 2 Kings used to be one book, and 1 and 2 Chronicles used to be one book. But we've divided them into two because they are just such massive books. They're huge. So, when we talk about 1 Samuel, we're really talking about the first part of a book that used to be called Samuel, just one book. 1 Samuel, key phrase, man's king. Man's king. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, the people of Israel come to Samuel the prophet and they say, give us a king like all the nations around us. We're not happy with the way your sons are doing things, Samuel. So give us a king because we want to be like all the other nations. 1 Samuel deals with the king that God told Samuel to anoint. There are really three main characters in 1 Samuel. There is Samuel, there is Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everybody else, and Saul is anointed king. It becomes a disaster after a while. And then there's David toward the end of 1 Samuel. The story of David and Goliath is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, for example. So Samuel, the prophet, Saul, the first king of Israel, David, God's anointed. All three are prominent characters in the book of 1 Samuel. Second Samuel, second Samuel, key phrase, the reign of David. Second Samuel begins with David becoming king. Saul dies, David becomes king, and second Samuel is about the reign of David the king. That's really what the book is. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 and 13 is one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament because God says in Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 12, key verse for the book, God says, David, after you have gone from this life, I am going to establish your line after you. I'm going to hold up your descendants. I'm going to give them a kingdom which is an everlasting kingdom. And ultimately this culminates in Jesus and what he's come to do. People were looking for a king that came from David's bloodline because of what you read in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and following. 2 Samuel, important book, the reign of David. By the way, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where you read about David's sin with Bathsheba. And so from chapters 1 to 10 of 2 Samuel, things are going great for David. But then when you get to chapter 11 and he sins with Bathsheba, everything goes downhill after that, all the way to the end of the book. 1 Kings. First Kings, key phrase, divided kingdom. First Kings is about the divided kingdom. First Kings begins with Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful, ornate building. It's unlike any, it's one of the wonders of the ancient world, literally, the, the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. The queen of Sheba comes to see it and her breath is taken away. She says, the half has not been told me. I can't believe what you've got here in Jerusalem, Solomon. But key verse, First uh, Kings chapter 11, verse 4. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. The Bible says Solomon married foreign wives and they turned his heart away from the Lord. And because Solomon turned to idolatry because of his wives, God tore the kingdom from Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 12 and 13. And ultimately there are two kingdoms now, one in the north called Israel and one in the south called Judah. And so 1 Kings deals with those two kingdoms in turn. 2 Kings, 2 Kings. 2 Kings is kind of up there with Judges, one of the saddest books in the Bible. 2 Kings deals with phrase, downfall and captivity, downfall and captivity. Instead of giving you a verse, I'll just give you a couple passages. Second Kings 17 is when Israel, the Northern kingdom is finally taken into captivity into Assyria. It was a horrible, terrible, ugly day. Second Kings 17. And then second Kings 24 and 25 
God allows Judah about a century later to go into captivity into Babylon. Second Kings, downfall and captivity. Both of the kingdoms were unfaithful to God. Both of them resisted efforts of, of the prophets to, to repent. And both of them were ultimately punished by God. First and second Kings. First Chronicles. We're making progress, aren't we? Here we go. First Chronicles. Key phrase. Roots. Back in the 1970s, Alex Haley had that mini-series called Roots. Some of you may remember that. First Chronicles is really about the roots of the Israelites. First Chronicles is an interesting book for a lot of reasons. It starts with nine chapters of genealogies. Just family after family after family, clan after clan after clan. First Chronicles, nine chapters of genealogies. Then it starts talking about the kingdom of Israel, talks about Saul, and then gets into talking about David. First Chronicles. So it's about our roots. It's about who we are. First Chronicles 16, 29. Give the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. First Chronicles 16, 29. A great verse to meditate on from that book. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, a key word to think about as you read that book, obedience. Obedience. First and Second Chronicles copy a lot of the same history that you read in First and Second Kings, but a couple of noteworthy features. First and Second Chronicles do not really tell you much about Israel, the northern kingdom. They don't talk about the kings up there. They don't talk about what that kingdom was doing. They just talk about Judah. They talk about the royal line from David and First and Second Chronicles are written late. They're written after captivity. And what these two books are doing is they are teaching again a new generation of Israelites after captivity. They're teaching these Israelites about who they are, about where they came from, about what, what's really important. And so the theme that you read, especially in Second Chronicles, is God wants his kings, but he wants his people to obey him. Second Chronicles 7:14 is a very famous passage, great verse to think about from Second Chronicles. Chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will hear my voice, will seek my face, will turn from their sin, turn from their iniquity, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. God says. God promises to hear when they turn to him in penitence and obedience. A great book to think about. Ezra. The book of Ezra. Restoration. Restoration. The people of Israel were taken into captivity for 70 years. There are really two big events in the Old Testament that you need to be aware of historically. One is the Exodus back in the book of Exodus. Big event, major event. The other is the 70 years of captivity. Happened about a thousand years later. And the 70 years of captivity was a time when the temple was burned to the ground. The people of Jerusalem were taken out of their city. They served as slaves for 70 years. That's about two generations in a foreign land. And Ezra is the story of how the king allowed those Jewish people to come back to their land. And so in Ezra chapters one through six, what you find is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, a while later, Ezra, whose book, name the book bears, Ezra comes back and he restores the people to the law. Key verse, Ezra 7 verse 10. 
One of the young men quoted it over here in, in uh, one of the last leaders lessons this afternoon. Ezra, Ezra 7 verse 10, prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. God's people needed to be restored to a relationship with God. They needed to rebuild the temple. They needed to be restored to the law of Moses. That's what Ezra came to do. The book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. Rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. In ancient times, a city with a wall was a city that was formidable. It was one that was difficult to take or capture. But if a city didn't have a wall, it was an embarrassment. It was a laughingstock. And Jerusalem had a temple and it had the people restored to the law, but Jerusalem did not have a wall. So Nehemiah, who was the king's cupbearer in Persia, Nehemiah prayed about this and Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and he helped those people get motivated to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah 2 verse 18, the people said, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah looked, he saw what needed to be done. He challenged the people and they said, we want to do this. And in Nehemiah 4 verse 6, the Bible says, the people had a mind to work. It's a great book about leadership. It's a great book about how to motivate people, about how to stay focused on the task in front of us. Nehemiah is a critically important New Testament book. I love what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter six, verse three. His enemies call him to come down off the wall and have a conversation with them. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down and have this conversation with you? Nehemiah six, verse three. A great New Testament, a great Old Testament book to think about in our lives. Esther. Book of Esther, Providence. Providence is when God works behind the scenes in ways that you can't see, but you know, you know He's there because He's made that promise. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Esther's about Providence. There are 10 chapters in the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned. Isn't that interesting? If there's a book of the Bible where God's name is not written at all, God's not mentioned at all, but his activity is on every page and every line of Esther. Esther is the queen of Persia, but she's a Jewish young lady. And Esther has the opportunity to save her people. And her cousin Mordecai sends word to her, hey, the Jewish people are in trouble. We're about to be exterminated. You need to go talk to the king. And Esther says, I can't go talk to the king. And Mordecai says, Esther, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther 4 verse 14, key verse. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther takes advantage of the opportunity presented to her. She saves her people. It's all about providence. It's about God providing for his people. Those are the books of history. Now we move into the books of poetry in the Old Testament, Job. Job is a book of poetry. Job may be the very first Old Testament book composed. It may predate even Genesis, maybe. Job is 42 chapters about suffering. Keyword, suffering. Job was a good man in Job chapter one. Job prayed for his family. Job had a lot of wealth. And Satan came to God and said, God, the only reason Job is serving you is because he's so blessed. If you take all this away, he's going to curse you and die. And God says, okay, Satan, take away the things that Job has. And Job loses his family. He loses his wealth. And in chapter two, even his own health is taken away. 
Job says this at one point. His, his friends come and starting in chapter three, they sit with him for a while. And then for like the next 30 so, or so chapters, the, the friends of Job and Job, they just talk. And, and his friends say things like, Job, the reason why you're suffering so badly is because you've sinned greatly against God. There's, you know, you, you've done something wrong, Job. And Job says, I, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, I don't know what, what it is that I would do to deserve this. Job says in Job 14, verse one, a great key verse, man who is born of woman, Job 14, one, man who is born of woman is but a few days and full of trouble. Kind of describes life, doesn't it? Job 42, verse seven is a great other key verse. Job 42, verse seven, God says at the end of the book, they have not spoken what is right concerning me. That's something worth thinking about for all of us who preach or teach God's word. We need to make sure that we're saying what's right concerning God or any of us that give counsel to somebody who's hurting. Think about whether what you're saying is right concerning God. Psalms, book of Psalms. Keyword, songbook of Israel. We have here at Katy, we have these songbooks, these hymnals. I know we use PowerPoint now, but We've got all of our songs in one book. That's what Psalms is, except Psalms is different from this. This is not inspired by God. This is. And so what those 150 Psalms are, they're individual songs, and they are songs that God gave to Israel so that Israel could give them back to God in praise and worship. That's what Psalms is. It's a beautiful book. It's an exciting book. Psalm 37, verse 4. I love that as the key verse of Psalms. Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that's what Psalm is really about. It's about delighting ourselves in the Lord. It's about seeing his greatness and his goodness. He gave us the Psalms so that we could give them back to him in praise and worship. There is no other book of the Bible quite like Psalms. There's no other book that God gave for that express purpose. This is how I want you to worship me, Israel. Proverbs, book of Proverbs. Most of y'all can name this key word, wisdom. That's what Proverbs is about, wisdom. Proverbs are short, pithy statements. There are some lengthier passages here and there, but for the most part, short, pithy statements of wisdom that come from God. Proverbs 9, verse 10, key verse. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise. You want to be able to look down the road and see where things are going to go, see how things are going to turn out. Proverbs is a tremendous book to study. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. There are 31 days in most months. It is a great practice for Christians to whatever uh, day corresponds to the chapter to just read that chapter of Proverbs. That's a great thing to do. If you'd like to get into the Old Testament, I'd suggest that. So it's April 2nd, read Proverbs 2. It's April 3rd tomorrow, read Proverbs 3, and so on and so forth. Tremendously practical, helpful book in a lot of ways. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, key phrase, meaning of life. Meaning of life for all the young people and for all those of us who are older who have ever sat and pondered, I wonder why I'm here, Ecclesiastes is your book. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and Solomon had all the wisdom and all the wealth and all the resources that he needed to try everything. And he tried everything. 
And Solomon basically says, he comes back to this refrain over and over, beginning in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I've tried everything there is to try and it's all meaningless under the sun. If God's not a part of my life, what's the point of doing anything in this world? Key verse of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. That was his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Song of Solomon, married love, married love. Two people are in love in Song of Solomon And the way that they talk to one another and the way that they relate to one another is highly instructive for those who are married. They speak delicately, they speak longingly, they speak thoughtfully of one another. Song of Solomon chapter two, verse 18, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, and he is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. Song of Solomon chapter two, verse 18, a great key passage for this book. There are some lessons that everybody needs to learn from this book about what God intended marriage to be all about. That concludes the books of poetry, books of major prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah. Key word, Messiah. 66 chapters in Isaiah, it's about the Messiah more than anything else. Isaiah says more about Jesus and about his ministry and what he's coming to do than any other Old Testament prophet anywhere. Key verse of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. Isaiah nine, verses six and seven. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He is going to have the government upon his shoulders. He's going to be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father talking about Jesus, about what he's going to accomplish. Isaiah 53 is one of the best loved passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is an account of Jesus' crucifixion and suffering for us and how God is going to see his soul and be satisfied, see the travail and the suffering of Jesus and be satisfied with that on our behalf. He was wounded for our iniquities. Isaiah 53 talks about that. The Messiah. All through Isaiah you find that theme. Jeremiah. Key word of Jeremiah backsliding, backsliding. A faithful people has backslid, has moved away from their God. Jeremiah 5 verses 30 and 31. Jeremiah 5 verses 30 and 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. They're not telling the truth. The priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. My people love to hear false things. They love it when people tell them what they want to hear, not what I want them to hear, backsliding. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is the one that says in Jeremiah 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep continually day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah wasn't happy to preach his message. As a matter of fact, he tried to quit in Jeremiah chapter 20. But he says, the word of God was in my heart like a fire shut up in my bones. I could not stop. I could not be restrained from preaching God's word more. We need more people that care about God's word like that, even today. Jeremiah, backsliding. Lamentations, sorrow, 
sorrow. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was torn to the ground. The temple was burned. It was torn down. And Lamentations is just a funeral dirge for the city of Jerusalem. Key verse, Lamentations 1 verse 12. The writer says, is it nothing to you all that pass by? All you people that are walking by Jerusalem, is, is it nothing to you? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? Lamentations, it's all about sorrow. Sorrow over sin, sorrow over devastation, sorrow over the calamities of life. If Lamentations teaches us anything, it teaches us that sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's okay to not be okay. That's what they do in Lamentations. Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, key word, glory. The glory of the Lord, especially in chapters 1 through 10 of Ezekiel. The glory of the Lord. God is glorious in his power, in his might, in his justice, in his wisdom, in his vengeance. And all of that comes shining through in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees visions of the glory of God. The glory of God leaves the temple because of the wickedness of the Israelites in chapter 10. Ezekiel is about the glory of God. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God tells Ezekiel, key passage, Ezekiel chapter 3, just take the whole chapter. He says, Ezekiel, I've set you as a watchman and I want you to stand in the gap and I want you to preach and warn the people. And if you warn them and they don't turn, that's on them. But if you fail to warn them, Ezekiel, if you don't say anything and they don't, and they don't turn, I'm going to hold you accountable too. Ezekiel's a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of God. That's what a prophet was, somebody who spoke for God. God said, Ezekiel, you're the one I'm looking to, to tell people about my glory. Daniel, book of Daniel, 12 chapters. Key phrase, God rules. God rules. That is the theme of the book of Daniel. The most high rules in the kingdoms of men. Daniel chapter four, verse 17. Daniel, the first six chapters are about Daniel's life. It's a biography of Daniel, how he was taken into captivity, how he became prominent in the kingdom, how he read the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter five, Lion's Den chapter six, and then chapter seven through 12 are all prophecies, apocalyptic prophecies of that. Kind of challenging to study and understand, but really, really fascinating stuff. And all of the book is about how God rules, no matter what kingdoms and emperors and kings and presidents try to do, God is on his throne and God is sovereign. That's Daniel. Hosea, book of Hosea. Now we get to the minor prophets, just 12 to go. Hosea, key phrase, spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. God, tells, God told prophets to do some really challenging things. It was not easy to be a prophet, a spokesman for God. God tells Hosea to go marry a lady named Gomer, who is a woman, the Bible says, of harlotry. And she's going to cheat on you, Hosea. She's going to go be with other men and she's going to have children. And God says, I want you to name your children things like, that one's not mine. That's literally your child's name, Hosea chapter one. Read it and see if I'm telling you the truth. And the metaphor of all this is Hosea's life is an example, a living illustration to the Israelites. You're spiritual adulterers. You are wicked. You are backslidden from God. And this is how God feels about you. What Gomer's doing to Hosea, that's what you're doing to God. 
Hosea chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed because they don't know me. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Key verse, Hosea four, verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Joel, I'm gonna say this, locust plague, okay? (laughs) You want kind of a, a memorable way to remember Joel? Locust plague. There was some kind, and Joel describes it as a locust plague, that comes in and just devastates all the crops in Israel. And the key verse is in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. The people should have been mournful, should have been sorrowful over what happened with these locusts because it was a judgment from God. And in Joel 2, verse 13, Joel says, you've not really repented. What you need to do is rend your hearts and not just your garments. Don't just make external show of being sorrowful over your sin, but rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel chapter two, verse 13. It's Joel that prophesies about a day when God's gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh later in Joel chapter two, when old men and young men are gonna prophesy and and, and they're gonna dream dreams and, and all that, and all that gets fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. As a matter of fact, Peter quotes from Joel in Acts chapter 2. Locust plague. The locust plague should have caused the people of Israel to sit up and take notice. We're not right with God. But instead, they just continued on their merry way. Amos, book of Amos. Justice. If you belong to God, you need to treat your fellow man according to justice. Treat them fairly, treat them right. Don't take advantage, don't abuse and oppress. Amos deals a great deal with the justice that we're supposed to exhibit in our lives toward others. Amos chapter five, verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be just. Amos, interestingly enough, in chapter seven was not a professional prophet. There was a school where you could go to learn how to be a prophet in ancient Israel. Amos was not from that school. Amos says, I was just a tender of sycamore fruit. I was a sheep herder. I was just, I was just out there in the, in the fields and God spoke to me and said, go, go talk to my people. I've heard people say this and it's probably true. Amos was basically a country boy with little education, but he knew God and he knew God's word and that's all he needed, justice. Obadiah, key word, pride. Shortest book in the Old Testament. It's about the pride of the Edomites. The Edomites were descended from Esau, not not Jacob. They They were Esau's descendants and the Edomites, they laughed and they danced and they had a great time when they saw the Israelites suffering. They thought it was hilarious and they actually encouraged and helped the enemies that were coming in to destroy Israel. Obadiah verse three. God speaks to those wicked Edomites and he says, you dwell up in this lofty crag. They, they lived in that place called Petra in the old, uh, old world over there. Um, you see it, you know, in some of the movies and things like that. You think that, you're, you think that you're protected. You think that you're safe, God says, Obadiah verse three. I will bring you down from your lofty place. The pride of your heart has deceived you. It's Obadiah, God preaching to the wicked Edomites. Jonah. Prejudice. That's what Jonah's about. You could say it's about the mercy of God. That's true too. But it's about Jonah's prejudice. Jonah did not like, he did not like those wicked Ninevites. 
He didn't like what they stood for. He didn't like what they'd done. He had good reason not to like them. But when God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I give you, Jonah said, no way. He got on a boat and he went the opposite direction, Jonah chapter 1. Finally, when God gets Jonah to actually do what he's supposed to do in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, the whole city repents. And then Jonah gets mad that the city repented, Jonah chapter 4. He gets mad that God spared them instead of destroying them. About prejudice, about how we feel toward our, toward our fellow man. Amos, excuse me, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, sorry, had to do that in my head. 39 points, it's a lot to keep up with. Micah, mercy, key word mercy. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Micah is about the mercy of God. God preaches through Micah a powerful number of sermons to people that needed to hear about how they were abusing their power, how they were being unjust, much like Amos. And yet Micah closes with the mercy of God. Micah is a fascinating book because in Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5, he almost verbatim copies Isaiah 2 about the coming kingdom, the church. And then in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it talks about and names the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verse 2. And then Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, it closes with one of the most beautiful passages in all the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to take your sins and I'm going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity, trampling our iniquities underfoot? It's as if you take our iniquities, our sins, and just throw them into the depths of the sea. Micah, a beautiful book about God's mercy and about how we need to be merciful to others. Nahum, key phrase, destruction of Nineveh. That's what the book is. The destruction of Nineveh. A century after Jonah, the Ninevites were back at their old habits, their old ways. They were wicked again. And Nahum is three chapters of devastation about how God is going to destroy and raise to the foundations the city of Nineveh. He's just utterly going to ruin them. Key verse, Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. As a matter of fact, Nahum 1 is really good to study about the attributes and characteristics of who God is. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, what's God like? He is a jealous God. He is a vengeant God. And he's going to come for you, Ninevites. Habakkuk, questioning God, questioning God. Habakkuk wants to know, how can God use a wicked nation like Babylon to punish a wicked nation like Israel. And after all, at least Israel gives lip service to obeying God. At least they have the temple and they, they kind of halfway sort of worship God. But Babylon, they're, they're completely given over to idolatry. How can you use a nation like Babylon, O oh God, to destroy a nation like Israel? That's what Habakkuk deals with. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. O oh Lord, are you not of two pure eyes to look upon evil? How then can you allow this to happen? God says in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, he says, I want you to know something, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And that phrase, that expression gets picked up at least three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. God's looking for faithfulness in all of our lives. Zephaniah, Zephaniah key phrase, day of the Lord, day of the Lord. 
Zephaniah is about judgment, about doom. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 12 and following, he talks about what the day of the Lord is going to be like. It's going to be a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of misery, of despair. You don't want the day of the Lord when the Lord is angry with you. Zephaniah. Haggai. Book of Haggai. Don't forget to build the temple. Don't forget to build the temple. In the days of Ezra, way back, many books ago, the people came back to the land and they were frustrated. They laid the foundation of the temple, but then they just left it in ruins because their enemies were all around. And Haggai and Zechariah both, that, by the way, you could put that for both of those books, don't forget to build the temple, because that's what both of them are about. Don't forget to build the temple, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah were God's cheerleaders. They were preachers. They came to the Israelites and their whole point, their whole message was build the temple, rise up and build, get going, build this, let's get it done. 16 years after they had laid the foundation, they finally finished the temple because of the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai is the shorter of the two. Haggai chapter one, verse seven, thus says the Lord God of Israel, consider your ways. Think about how you're living. Zechariah chapter four, verse six. How are we going to get this thing done? How are we going to get this temple built? Zechariah 4, verse 6, not by might nor by, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how you're going to get the temple built. Not by your strength and by your ingenuity, by my spirit, by my power. Haggai, Zechariah. And finally, we arrive at Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Robbery. Robbery. Will a man rob God? Malachi is interesting among the prophets because Malachi uses a question and answer format. He talks about, he talks about uh, things that the Israelites are doing and he asks a question, then he answers his own question, then he, then he expounds a little bit. Malachi wants these Israelites to know being committed to God is about giving our whole hearts to him in every facet of our lives. Will a man rob God? How have we robbed you, God? We've robbed you. You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. You're not giving to me what I'm due. Take that to your governor, that offering that you're giving, and see if he accepts it. See if he likes it. You're trying to offer that to me, the sick and the lame? Don't do that, those things. That's Malachi. Malachi closes, by the way, with the prophecy of John the baptizer coming, Elijah. And that's how the Old Testament comes to a close. Elijah's going to come. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children. And then when you start reading in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you see that's exactly what John the baptizer does. He goes out into the wilderness and he begins to cry 400 years later, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it ties together beautifully the Old and the New Testaments. There's much to learn about our God as we study the Old Testament. I hope that you'll at least think about some of the things we've talked about tonight. And if there's something that piques your interest, I hope that you'll study it further. Because we don't really know God as well as he wants us to unless we're familiar with the content of the Old Testament as well as the New. Thank you so much for your kind attention today. I didn't realize that April 2nd was going to be such a busy day when I planned this sermon series. It's just what happened. But I appreciate your patience and I'm thankful for you. If you need to obey the gospel, and we can help you do that tonight, or if you need to ask for prayers this evening, whatever your need is, won't you make your need known while together we stand and while we sing?